Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. Shit. <laughs> that sounded like a, well, okay. Shit. There's, shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Today on our show, we bring you a story by Banning Lion. Banning Lion is the author of The Chair and the Valley, which will be available June 2024 on The Open Field, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. His writing has been featured in The New York Times and The Washington Post. He currently lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and works as a backpacking guide in Yosemite National Park. This episode, it's about so many things, but I want to say it's really about how to write a near-perfect essay. The essay you're about to hear was originally published in the Washington Post. Also oh. on this podcast, you're going to be able to hear an interview with Banning Lion about his process, the good, the bad, everything, and how he ended up landing an agent. So really good stuff. So stay tuned to the end. Back with Banning Story after the break. Hey, writers. For the last 45 years, I've been going to tennis clinics to practice forehand, backhand serves. What does this have to do with writing? Well, practice, I've learned in the last 45 years, is what it takes to get good at anything. And that's why Writing Class Radio hosts a tips clinic, a writing tips clinic. We do this every second Saturday so that we can all practice going to scene, writing like we speak, omitting needless words, everything that it takes to become great, or at least better at writing. So join us every second Saturday from 12 noon to one Easter time on Zoom. To join, go to writingclassradio.com and click the link for the tips clinic. It's $10 and believe me, it's a lot cheaper than a tennis clinic. See you there. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. We're back. This is Allison Langer, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. Up next is Banning Lion reading his story, When I Was 15, a Psychiatric Hospital Nearly Ruined My Life. I've worked as a backpacking guide in Yosemite National Park and Point Reyes National Seashore for over a decade. On an average workday, 
alpaca clients blistered feet in the rain, shoe-way bears, and make daiquiris for folks using rum, Kool-Aid, and snow. But the truth is that I've spent most of my adult life avoiding people. Because before I became a guide, I've been a victim of one of the largest mental health care fraud scams in the history of the United States. When I was 15 in 1987, my school counselor called my estranged parents and told them I was suicidal after I'd given away my skateboard. She said it was a call for help. I told them it wasn't true. I bought another board, I said. My friend broke his, so I gave him mine. I wanted a different one. It didn't matter. The next day, they signed me into a psychiatric hospital owned by a company that would eventually plead guilty to paying kickbacks and bribes for patient referrals, leading to the largest settlement ever between the federal government and a healthcare provider at the time. I spent 11 months sitting in a chair facing the pastel-colored wall of my room, sometimes for up to 12 hours a day. The staff called it chair therapy. They said I was supposed to think about my problems. Most days, I was forced to eat alone in my room, with a tray of food resting on my lap while I stared at the wall. I wasn't allowed to go outside, touch anyone, or speak privately with my parents or other patients. I eventually grew so sensory-deprived I could smell rain or sweat on the incoming staff's clothing, even from a distance. By the time I left the hospital, I was the scattered wreckage of a teenager. The chaos and noise of the world filled me with a superheated rage. I spent most of high school fantasizing about publicly hanging myself from the rafters of the gym. But the one thing that brought me genuine happiness that quieted my flashbacks and intrusive thoughts was being outside. After nearly a year of living in the equivalent of solitary confinement, even the sight of a few finches splashing in a rainy puddle brought tears to my eyes. Every detail of the natural world seemed surreal now. Before I began working as a guide, I'd long believed that other people were better or more normal than me. Only a handful of my friends knew details of my past that I'd watch the hospital staff strap kids to beds, sometimes for weeks and months at a time. One of my closest friends from the unit had been tied to his bed with leather posy restraints for nearly a year. Angry red bed sores surrounded his wrists and ankles when he was finally released. He needed physical rehabilitation before he could walk again. It wasn't until I began spending days in the backcountry with clients that I realized I wasn't different from them. They weren't better or more normal than me. They were alcoholics or cutters or parents who had alienated their kids. They had lost siblings and spouses to cancer and suicide. Once, early in my first season, a freckled woman from Boston, with the accent to prove it, broke down in tears while we were carrying water back to camp. My dad died last year, she said. He won't be there to walk me down the aisle. He'll never be a grandfather to my kids. Her partner was on the trip with her. He had proposed the day before, at the foot of Yosemite's Bridal Veil Fall, hours before meeting us. I stood there, dumbfounded, listening to her grieve the loss of her father. She was sitting on a log in front of an enormous ponderosa pine, its graceful branches hovering over her, as if her father were trying to comfort her again. I knew at that moment that I'd found my place in the world, and that I needed to come to terms with my past. 
but I never would have found the courage without the serenity of nature and the help of my clients. Week after week, trip after trip, we explored different portions of the park, always coming to rest in some beautiful campsite at the foot of one of Yosemite's towering granite peaks. Together, we'd build a fire and then cook dinner and talk about our lives. Slowly, over those first few weeks, I began sharing portions of my past, only to discover that no one thought any differently of me. They didn't scream and run away. They didn't stare at me in silence. Instead, they hugged me and wept with me. Some of them even understood what it was like to witness abuse and suffering and to be helpless to stop it. By the end of that first season, it wasn't only nature that seemed surreal, but also the kindness of people. Today, after guiding hundreds of clients, I'm still wounded. I've learned there is no finish line for healing, but my wounds have meaning now. And for that, and for the people who have made it possible, I will be forever grateful. Years ago, just weeks after I'd been hired, my boss invited me to go on a backpacking trip with her and two of her closest friends. Think of it as your orientation, she said, tossing her pack on her back at the trailhead. It turns out one of the men on the trip was her mentor, a 70-year-old retired biology teacher who looked like a gold miner who had gotten lost in the mountains. On the last morning of our trip, while we were sitting by a small lake in the shade of some alder trees, I asked him for a bit of guiding wisdom. What he gave me was hope. Just keep all your folks on the trail, he said. They'll show you the way. Can I start? I want to start. There's so much I want to say about this essay and hearing it right now. Like I'm, I have tears. Like I'm so moved. The read was so gorgeous. The whole story is so hopeful, even though fucking shit what he went through. And there's these two moments that, um, that I noticed this time that were like all about hope. And I'm going backwards, but it's the last two lines. So he lands the story so perfectly. What he gave me was hope. This was the advice that he got from the older man. Just keep all your folks on the trail, he said. They'll show you the way. And then the other part where he was talking, it was just three paragraphs up where he's talking about how he, once he started sharing what happened to him, how other people were just like, they didn't scream. They didn't run away. And it wasn't only nature that seemed surreal, but also the kindness of people. I mean, this narrator has every reason to fucking hate humanity. But he doesn't. And this story just shows us why. I feel like it really says a, a, says a lot about him. Well, what we talk about when we receive stories and when we talk about stories on the podcast is mostly about how much we learn about a narrator. And in this story, we really get an, a sense of who this guy is as far as his strength, his mindset. We really don't hear many details about what it was like for him in that place, just a very few couple of details. And that's not what we need because that was many years ago. We're really interested in how it's impacted him now. And this narrator does that really, really well. 
I mean, I am interested in what it was like for him at that, at that hospital. And I am interested in, in his backstory. And he did write a whole memoir. Oh yeah. So yay, because I can't wait to read it. But for this essay, you're right. He didn't need to go into all the details about that, that nearly a year that he spent there. He gave us just enough. Sometimes I like a before, like what was life like before? And this narrator gave us really one word, two words to show us the before. And that was um, my school counselor called my estranged parents. So we know that his, his parents are estranged. That's all we know. But I so believed him based on what then happened. They believed this counselor, his parents, and they took him to a psychiatric hospital that nearly ruined his life. Now I'm seeing the title in a new way. When I was 15, a psychiatric hospital nearly ruined my life. This advice saved me. And I I love the title now because of that word nearly. Because it could have so destroyed him, but it didn't. A hundred percent. The other thing I really love, and we talk about this too, is even if this situation didn't happen to us specifically, we've all been in a place where our past, something in our past kind of haunts us. And how do we keep going? And this narrator really draws that home in his writing in a very succinct way, mostly about, first of all, sharing his information and realizing that people were drawn to him. And also that his friends, you know, if you can keep people close, they will guide you. And we, as people sometimes shut people out when we're hurting or in pain. And I've realized that, and I know you have, that the the more vulnerable I have been, the more people have drawn to me. And I see that in his story. So I completely related a lot. And I loved it because of that. Yeah, I know. I agree. I don't think this guy was a writer going in, was he? Or he's been writing for years. No, this is his first project, this book. I think that he learned to write so that he could write the story about what happened to him. Mm. And we're going to get him on the line, which I'm so excited about because he is the loveliest man. And I, I spoke to him very briefly and I can't wait to ask him some questions for our radio listeners. But um, yeah, he learned to write so that he could write this story. But there's a few other things about this essay that I wanted to mention. I mean, his details, I think his details are spot on. The part where he's talking about how sensory deprived he was, that he could smell rain on someone, just like specifics of that, or sweat on an incoming staff's clothing. God. Another place where his details just like really struck me were a few finches splashing in a rainy puddle. Okay, so he's amazing with details. He also, this is something that I just noticed. He knows trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, but he did not use those tired words. And I don't mean to diss anybody who's been through a traumatic event because you know, so many personal essays are made of like, are made because that people are making art out of their bad situations. But God, how many of the 
submissions we read where people use words like trauma and PTSD, like they just throw them out and they've come to kind of lose meaning for me. But Banning Lion talked about, I, I can't remember how he put it. Oh, he, the outdoors quieted his flashbacks and intrusive thoughts. I just thought that was so well said. Basically, we understand. He just said it exactly the way a person would tell another person who wasn't steeped in lingo and jargon. And I really appreciated that. And in one paragraph, he's fantasizing about hanging himself in the rafters to the amazement of the finches in the puddle. And then realizing, you know, like he thought that other people were better than him or more normal. And, you know, that's, that's pretty cool how in just a very succinct short paragraph, we learn where this narrator's mindset was that for so long, this narrator was thinking he was not normal and that he was the only one who had suffered. And then one by one, he starts hearing about other people. And it wasn't a comparative thing. Like sometimes people do because there really is no comparison when you're talking about trauma. What's trauma for one person in any sort of shape or form is trauma for another person in another shape or form. So I just thought that was, it was really interesting that he didn't, he didn't compare, but he's just saying that once he realized that he started to feel like he was normal and he fit in to the world. So I thought that was really cool. One other thing that I loved, love, love so much about this essay. And that is like an essay needs to bring in evidence to prove a point. And so this narrator is telling us that he realized he wasn't different from anyone else or from the other people that were around him. And then here's this scene. So here's the evidence that proves what he's saying. He's listening to this woman talk about her father who died and who wasn't going to be able to walk her down the aisle. I stood there dumbfounded, listening to her grieve the loss of her father. She was sitting on a log in front of enormous ponderosa pine its graceful branches hovering over her as if her father were trying to comfort her again. I'm like, I got chills. There's the evidence. There's this moment. It's a scene. It's, it's gorgeous. It's everything a personal essay needs to be. And now I'm distracted because the beautiful banning lion is sitting in front of us on our Zoom Banny Lyon, thank you so much for joining us. First thing I want to ask you, I mean, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with wanting to ask you like 20 questions at once. But what I first want to ask you is about the... So we know that you wrote a full memoir, actually, even before you wrote this essay. So will you talk for like a minute or two about the process of writing that memoir? I could talk for hours about the process of writing that memoir. Um, That's why I said minute or two. <laughs> when I began writing my book, I was about 45, 46. I had a book deal and a movie deal shortly after the lawsuit that I was involved in after the hospital, but I turned it down. I didn't want to be famous for being a psychiatric patient. And so it just wasn't anything I was interested in, but I had an event take place I became a backpacking guide in Yosemite National Park. I still backpack and guide there. Uh, I'm an outdoor educator in the Bay Area. I also teach outdoor skills. And that was sort of my way to reconnect to people because I grew up in the outdoors. It's always been my happy place. And I was disconnected from it in the hospital. 
So I had an event take place on a class and I can't discuss the details of that because it really is sort of crucial to the, my story. But when I had that event take place, I knew that I was sort of, I had a moral obligation to write a book in many ways. And I think a lot of what powered my writing was survivor guilt because a lot of my friends from the hospital are dead. And um, I felt sort of compelled to do what I could with the rest of my life because I feel like the rest of my life is very much a gift compared to theirs. So 30 years later, you started to write your book. 30 years later. Yeah, I've always been kind of a writer. I dabbled with it and, and messed with it, but I didn't really learn the actual trade or craft of writing until I took this book very seriously. So much so that I took a year off from writing the book and actually basically put myself through kind of a college level style and grammar course in order to understand to like embrace my voice because my voice isn't what I wanted it to be. I wanted to be a very certain type of writer and then discovered my voice wanted me to be a very different kind of writer. And so I had to learn to embrace that voice, which I came to love and I'm very good at, but it wasn't initially how I wanted to sound. How would you describe how you wanted to sound and how do you, how would you describe how you do sound? I wanted to be very sort of writerly. When I first started wanting to write, I wanted to embellish everything and really get into details. And, and I think there's a time and a place for that in writing. But I found out that I actually write very economically. I write like basically like a journalist. And that I think in many ways lended itself to my story because A, it's very long and I needed to keep it brief. I just want to interrupt for a second to say to anyone listening, sometimes it's really important to get out of our own writerly minds, like writerly in quotes, and just tell the story. And I think that you are a great example of someone who who'd learned to do that. I know it based on your essay. Your essay is just a great, well-told, not pretentious, not writerly, perfectly told story. So how long did it take you to write the full memoir? And tell me a little bit about like, you told me this the other day on the phone, but like, what was your process? Like what you put yourself through? Yeah. Writing my memoir took me in total a good six years. And it included probably three full rewrites. My initial first draft was entirely too long. And so I cut my manuscript nearly in half uh, by the time I had finished. And I'm not one of those writers who just for the sake of writing is going to write every day. But if I have a project, I write every day, period. No exceptions, seven days a week. And when I was writing my book, I wrote often no fewer than 10 hours a day and probably as many as 16. And I often did not eat. I wouldn't take breaks. I wouldn't stand up for hours and hours and hours at a time, which to me is totally normal because when I lived in the hospital, that was my life. And so it's a familiar place for me to just sort of go into my head and live there for many hours and not eat or drink or do anything and then sort of come to it. Was it comforting when you were writing your book or was it a sort of a form of self-torture? Both. I think in many ways, revisiting my past was both horrifically traumatizing and comforting because there are people from my past who are no longer here, who I could only really spend time with in the book. And so my book in many ways is a love story, like a love letter to those people. And I won't say it was like masochistic, but at many times I felt as if I was doing harm to myself by writing because it was so incredibly painful. 
I'd spend hours crying while I was writing, knowing that it was really good writing, but I just simply couldn't stop because I was in the right place emotionally in order to get into what I needed to get into in order to get the words on paper. It was a very, very, very brutal process that took me many years. And I often wonder sometimes looking back now, if I had known what this entire journey to publishing would be like, you know, would I have done it? And um, I would ultimately, I know that in my heart of hearts, because it's also been very cathartic and therapeutic for me to have undergone this process. I think ultimately it's been a net gain and goodness. When you were finished with the chair in the Valley, what did you do? How did you get your agent? Because I know that you got your agent and your publisher in a very unusual and your <laughs> testament to the brilliance of your writing. You got an agent that way. You have very few shots to get your memoir in front of an agent. You basically can do it once. And then when you're turned away, you don't have another chance to really chop your book to that agent or agency. And so of really good, high quality agents, you have maybe 100 to 200 in the United States or in the world, really, essentially. And so I knew my book had to be very, very, very good. And so I worked on really tightening it up. I worked on writing a really tight query letter, which a good friend of mine who's also a writer helped me with. I wrote ultimately about 40, 40 query letters. And I got, I think, out of those maybe eight full requests, which is about par for the course, I think, for most writers. The few rejections I got were very kind. They were often like, we're not the right agency for you or I'm not the right agent. I think you'll find a home for it. So from the very beginning, really my top pick was an agent named Meg Thompson. I just sort of had this gut feeling that I, Meg and I would resonate. I'm not sure why exactly. And then I read an interview with her and Curtis. They asked her, what's your least favorite genre to get queried? And she said, memoir. And she said, because it's often just derivative or some story that's being retold. And that she really loves memoirs, but they're just good ones are so rare. And so I don't know what inspired me. In those words, I was like, that's my agent. Like that's, I just knew. And so I queried Meg and I've basically had written her off because as most writers who are querying understand now, silence really is, is the common rejection. Getting a rejection letter is actually kind of a rare treat. But one thing that you told me is that you queried Meg Thompson cold. You didn't know anyone that knew her. And the game lately is you really need to say so-and-so suggested I query you. But you didn't have that. You didn't have a step into the door. I had no sort of referral at all. I cold queried her. And I did that really for every agent except one. And so I didn't hear back from her for nearly three months uh, through what's called query manager. And then one day I heard back from Meg and she said, I read your query with interest. I'd like to read the full manuscript. I was like, wow, that's cool. By then I'd gotten, you know, I think, like I said, about seven full manuscript requests. So I was like, don't get too excited. You know, it'll probably just be a rejection, but still, you know. And so I sent her the full manuscript and kind of put it out of my mind. Two weeks passed and then I heard back. I sent her a proposal. So I was like, okay, I'll just sit here with twiddling my thumbs. And so two, three weeks passed. And I just was like, okay, I guess she didn't like my proposal. And I was a little heartbroken because Meg was my number one pick. And then one day I was actually in kind of a sour mood. I was really sad and kind of mulling over this defeat that I had been looking so forward to. I was very deflated that day. I came home and I was uh, cutting watermelon for my daughter. <laughs> and um, my email 
alert went off and I just grabbed my phone just offhandedly and looked at it and it said offer representation from Thompson Literary Agency. You know, I, I, I broke down to tears. I mean, I sat on the floor and just started crying. It was a huge, huge moment for me. But the way that you did it was seriously like 0.1% of anybody who gets an agent gets an agent out of the slush pile. And so it is so amazing and fantastic. Yeah, as, as most writers know, it was like winning the Powerball lottery. It was really a huge, 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 huge thing for me. But then, you know, then you have to find a publisher. And so that was a whole other part of the journey. So tell us just quickly who your publisher is and what's the release date. I'm being published on an imprint called The Open Field, which is Maria Shriver's personally curated imprint on Penguin Random House. And my book is slated to be released in June of 24. One last thing I want to say is that most writers, they try to get the attention of an agent through a splashy story like the one that we just heard in the Washington Post. But you got the agent and then you wrote the story in the Washington Post. So your story just stands on its own. Your story is beyond beautiful and tragic and you bring meaning to it in a way that's amazing. Thank you. My essay was quite easy to write. It only took me like 45 minutes to write the essay. Um, By then, I was a very practiced writer. (laughs) Don't tell us that, Ben. (laughs) So let me elaborate quickly because while the essay took me 45 minutes to write, the last paragraph took me two days to to tweak. So the day I got it, I was like, okay, this is done. I just knew it. Well, it really took six years of writing the book and a lifetime of experience and then... 45 minutes plus two days. So well done, Panning Lion. I think for us, like just being able to share your words with our listeners is so amazing. So thank you so much for taking the time and doing that with us, really. You're all very welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's goofy to say you're an inspiration, but I'm inspired. Thanks for your interest. It means a lot to me. Love it. Thank you for listening and thank you, Banning, for sharing your story with us. Writing Class Radio is hosted by me, Allison Langer, and Andrea Askwitz. Audio production is by Matt Kundal, Evan Serminski, Chloe Emon Lane, and Aiden Glassy at the Sound Off Media Company. Theme music is by Justina Chandler. There's more writing class on our website, including stories we study, editing resources, video classes, writing retreats, and live online classes. Join our writing community by following us on Patreon. If you want to write every week with us, you can join our first draft weekly writers group. You have the option to join me on Tuesdays, 12 to 1 Eastern time, and or Thursdays with Eduardo Wink, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern time. You'll write to a prompt and share what you wrote. If you're a business owner, community activist, group that needs healing, entrepreneur, and you want to help your whole team write better, check out all the classes we offer on our website, writingclassradio.com. Join the community that comes together for instruction, an excuse to write, and the support from other writers. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio or sign up for First Draft on our website. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. 
Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.